This morning, we have the opportunity together to look into the mirror of God's Word. Will you look with me into the mirror of God's Word? What will we see there? We will certainly see our own need for repentance. We'll also see the glory of Christ and His power to save. We'll see the providence of God and His goodness to transform us into the image of Christ. And so may we, may we be ready and open by the power of the Spirit to receive what He has for us today. Let me invite you to stand. And I want to read to you this morning our text. We'd like to focus on the entirety of chapter 4. And I'll read this for us, and then we'll pray and ask the Lord to bless our time of study. Esther chapter 4, verses 1-17. through 17. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go out to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg for his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. And Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace, you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the king for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold, fast, hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, 
I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. And so ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray together. Father, we ask you to open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things out of your law. We want to see and look into the perfect law of liberty. We want to be doers of your word and not merely hearers who delude ourselves into thinking that true change equals merely hearing and being moved by the word to believe what it says. May we also be obedient to it in our daily lives. May we see Your glory, the glory of Your providence today in this Scripture text. May we see Your working, Your faithful, loving, kind, merciful, gracious working as You bring Your children to repentance and to trust You once again. We pray that You would so work in our lives and may our eyes be open to Your providential working in our lives and may we, may we rest in that and not fear. May we, may we see Christ and dependently walk in obedience to Your will. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Our main idea that we've been focusing on during these days of studying the book of Esther is this. And it's at the top of your, actually, it's at the bottom of your outline there in the bulletin. See the glory of God as He providentially works redemptive reversal at the most dire moment for the sake of Christ and learn to trust Him wholeheartedly. Have you been able to observe the mounting of events that are moving the people of God in the book of Esther toward a very, very desperate moment? Have you been seeing that, observing that with me? And we're being moved toward that moment closer and closer where God is going to turn things around for His people in a powerful way. But we've also seen that, that God turns His people's hearts to repentance first, doesn't He? Before He turns around and changes their circumstances. Through mysterious and sometimes bitter providences, but always loving providence, God faithfully works to turn the hearts of His people back to Himself. Away from their apathy. Away from their worldliness. Their love for the world more than love for Him and His ways. And away from their sin to trust Him and obey His will. He works a redemptive reversal in His children's hearts. And through that, often changes Last week, we saw how God so faithfully and graciously brought Mordecai and many of the people of Israel to that place of repentance. We've seen changes begin to happen in Mordecai's life and his words, and we'll see more today in the text of chapter 4. And so I think about that, and I think about all the very distressing circumstances that Mordecai's been through up to this point, and we'll, we'll review some of those along the way. Specifically, the death warrant that was written and disseminated by 
Haman. Haman the heinous, as we've called him. But we haven't yet seen Esther's repentance yet, have we? That's what I think this chapter is mostly about. It's interesting to me also how Mordecai's repentance begun and how that had an effect on Esther and how the Lord used his repentance to move her to repentance as well. Let's see what God's Word reveals to us in this fourth chapter. Well, we've read the text, and let us walk through it as we have again. Let me explain the text as we go, and then we'll seek to apply it together. So number one, let's do a little bit of review here. Mordecai's repentance. You can follow along in your outline, and I'll try to give you the, the blanks to fill in along the way. Mordecai's repentance is verses 1-3. through three. We looked at these last week. And the first thing that, that I see in here that has, has jumped off the page to me as maybe an indication of Mordecai's change of heart is his shameless identification with the people of God. Notice what, what Mordecai is doing in response to this hideous edict of death. He's not running to his house and hiding anymore, is he? He's immediately tearing his robes, putting on sackcloth and ashes, and he's going out into the midst of the city and he's crying out with a loud and bitter cry. And even that, he moves close up to the entrance of the king's gate. He gets as close to King Ahasuerus, the one whom he has served as an official, as he can, as he's allowed to get as close to him as possible. No one was allowed to enter the king's own chambers clothed in sackcloth. But he got to the king's gate and he made known clearly his mourning over this edict and certainly his identification with the people of God. I also see here a scriptural reflection in Mordecai's repentance. And not just in his repentance, but the repentance of the Jewish people. It is not by accident that we see here in verse 3 these words, in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Those three words, fasting, weeping, and lamenting. There's only two texts in the Old Testament that have those three words, those very three words, in that exact same order. And that is here in Esther 4, verse 3, and also in Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 27. Would you look at Joel chapter 2 with me again? I believe that we are invited by the Spirit-inspired words of Esther. We're invited to look at Joel 2 and understand it and, and be glancing back and forth from Esther chapter 4 to Joel chapter 2. I think we're invited to look there and to understand that this is what is happening among God's people here in chapter 4. There's such a clear link between these two texts. Let me, let me read this text for us. I want to read carefully Joel 2, 12-27. <clears throat> Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with, here's the three words, with fasting and weeping and mourning. The word here in Esther 4.3 at the end is lamenting, but it's the identical Hebrew word, mourning, translated as mourning in Joel 
and rend your, your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God for His greatness and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And He relents over disaster. Is there a disaster that's coming upon the people of Esther's time? Yes, this edict of death. That's a disaster. And so God is inviting His people to be broken over their worldliness, their sin, their compromise, and to return to Him. And why should they? Because of His character. We'll look more carefully at this text in our time of application. But there are so many parallels here between this text and what's going on in Esther 4. Who knows? Remember those two words. Who knows? Whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Aha! Consecrate a fast. Did that happen in chapter 4? Did someone call for a fast? We'll see. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Isn't that something? You're, you're getting ready for a wedding? That's less important than this. And repenting of sin. Leave that behind and come and fast and pray and turn to the Lord. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Then the Lord became jealous for His land and had pity on His people. What a great hope, right? God did work in the time of Esther. And this indicates God's intent to do so. The Lord answered and said to His people, Behold, I'm sending to you grain and wine and oil and you'll be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I'll remove the the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land. His vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea and stench and foul smell of him will rise for he has done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice. For the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field. For the pastures of the wilderness are green and the tree bears its fruit and the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For He has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain. The early and the latter rain is before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. There is a close parallel to what's going on between these two texts. There appears to be something of the same response of God's people in the midst of this disaster. These words sound like Mordecai's. Notice, for example, 
keep a finger in chapter 2 of Joel and look back at Esther chapter 4. Remember I said, remember the words, who knows, at the beginning of chapter four, or verse 14. And the same verse in Esther 4.14, 4, Mordecai says to Esther, and who knows? Sort of jumps off the page at you. Like, like Mordecai's remembering Joel too. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai's words point us there. The response of God's people points us there. This looks like Esther's command in verse 16. Verse 16 says, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa in Esther chapter 4. Hold a fast on my behalf. And there it is. Verse 16 of Joel 2. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children. Let a fast be, be brought about. Blow the trumpet, verse 15 in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. That's exactly what Esther does. It seems to me that God is working true repentance among His people through these horrific events. Though not directly mentioned, all of this must have included prayer to Yahweh pleading for His mercy and His kindness. Prayer. So first, we reminded here of Mordecai's repentance. Number two, Esther's request. Esther's request, verses 4 and 5. Now it's interesting, in verses 4 and 5, Esther does not yet know about Haman's plan. She doesn't know why Mordecai is expressing his grief so intensely. So when she heard that her cousin Mordecai was behaving in such a state of grief, she's then distressed simply to learn that. It says that in verse 4, she was distressed. So she was close to Mordecai, for sure. She knew what this statement of tearing of the clothes and, and putting on sackcloth meant. It was a common Jewish expression of deep, deep distress. And of course, she was very obedient to him. The text already told us that. She followed Mordecai very closely and And so she was very sympathetic with him. And so when she learned of his behavior, she sent a gift, letter B. So her distress, letter A, letter B, her gift. Her gift, what did she send? Garment. Take off those sackcloth, those those mourning robes. Mordecai, put on these. And of course, his response is to refuse. It's not the time for gladness. It's the time for grief, for mourning, for repentance. He would not accept them, the text says. And then... She offers a question, and it's kind of interesting. I find it interesting in this text how there's a courier, a eunuch, that runs back and forth between Mordecai and Esther, carrying on the conversation between them. Didn't have phones back then, so they sent a eunuch, and he would run back and forth and carry on the conversation. And so what is her question? Why all of this? Why it was? What are, what's going on, Mordecai? And so number three then, we see Mordecai's reply. Number three, Mordecai's reply. Verses 6-9. through nine. And we see first that he gave an account in verses 6 and 7. He gave an account. He went out and she told him all, or he told all that happened to him. And of course, Hathak passed that on to Esther. All that happened to him. Everything from... Esther chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, Mordecai passed on. And even the, the sum, the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay, which was what? 10,000 talons of silver. 
And he also sent a copy. So he must have sent a copy of chapter 3, verse 13. Remember what that said? Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's providence with instruction to destroy and to kill and to annihilate the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. And so Mordecai sent the account and he sent copy of that edict. But I think most importantly here, he issued a command. Notice, Mordecai commanded her. This is very, very important here. Go to the king. Beg his favor. Plead with him. And here's the tough part. Plead with him what? On behalf of her people. Now she's called to do what? To make known her identity. Oh, it's my people that are being exterminated here. Plead with him on behalf of her people. This was Mordecai's command to her. And I think this, even this, is revealing more of Mordecai's own heart of repentance. Because what had Mordecai taught Esther to do before? Don't tell anybody who you are. Keep your people a secret. Remember, they're, they're assimilators, right? They're, they're compliant. They're going right along with the worldly program of the king of Persia. And now what? Tell the king who you are. Fight for your people. Now's the time, Esther. Oh, that's a difference, isn't it? And we find out here very quickly that this command flies right at the heart of Esther's fears and compromises, doesn't it? When the harem was being gathered from all the provinces so that the king could pick a queen, she went right along with it. And she was the best of the best. She didn't resist this, this sinful union. She, she compromised. She complied. And so... This is going to fly right at the heart of her fears. She's going to have to come out and identify who she is. So what will Esther do? Will she continue to be fearful and sinful? Or will she repent and also trust in the Lord with all of her heart? So number four, Esther's reservations. We're not surprised that she immediately responds with a, with a kind of a fear. Letter A, there's the law of death. And Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. What's that law? Be put to death. Except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. Well, you can't just go and see the king. You've got to wait for him to invite you. She hadn't been invited to the king for how long? 30 days. I've not been called to come into the king for 30 days. The laws of the Medes and the Persians, right? That's kind of an idiom for us, isn't it? What does that mean? That means we're talking about a law that's unalterable and that can't be repealed. It's kind of a, it's a common idiom referring to those kinds of laws. If you come to the king uninvited he didn't, and he didn't raise his scepter, you were executed. And so there's the law of death, but then also we see here the fear of death. That's the answer that Esther gives to Mordecai initially. I, I don't want to die. If I go in, 
I'm going to be, I'm going to die here. I haven't been invited. That's what she's talking about here in so many words. And so think about that for a moment. Put yourself in her shoes for, for a second. You've got a large group of people whom you love and care about and are identified with and are your ancestors still here in the land? You're the queen. You're called to go and fight for them and that would reveal a lot. And first and foremost, even before you do that, you've got to break the law in order to appeal for them. What would you do? So Esther's fear here is actually self-focused at this point in the story, isn't it? It seems that at this very moment, verses 10 through 11, she is more concerned about her own well-being, saving her own life, than trying to save the lives of her people, even at her own expense. Can you see that? That's where she is at the moment. She's struggling with that. Apparently, she's still thinking like Mordecai had taught her to think. Keep quiet. Compromise. Comply. So there's Esther's reservations. But again, Mordecai is now different, isn't he? And so we, we have a rebuke. Mordecai's rebuke, verses 13 through 14. Let's look at those. First, you have his warning. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. That's what he says. That's fair, right? By you hiding and not revealing your identity, Esther, you think you're going to escape this? No, he'll find you out. You're a Jew too, Esther. Don't forget that. These unbearable laws of the Medes and the Persians will see to it that even you are not spared. But then, notice Mordecai's trust. His trust is built into his rebuke. He says in verse 14, for if you keep silent, what's going to happen? At this moment, if you keep silent, what? Relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. What's, what is Mordecai saying? God is still going to deliver us. Wow, Mordecai is waking up to the promises of God, isn't he? Maybe he's thinking about the covenant promises that he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so on. I will be with you. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will make you a blessing. Through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now his heart is awake to the promises of God, even in the midst of a bitter providence. And he begins to realize that even if Esther doesn't turn in repentance and identify with Yahweh and His people at this very crucial moment, God will still deliver His people. God will still be faithful to His promises. Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place though it doesn't come from you. Is that something? This is like a different guy here. <laughs> he has changed in his response to these events. And then you see not only his warning and his trust, but you see his hope. His hope. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. That's probably the most famous verse in all of Esther, isn't it? For such a time as this. How many books have been written about Esther with that title? such a time as this. That's a good one. It's a good title. Mordecai is remembering. He has to be. Remembering that, you know, remember the, the edict went out the day before Passover celebration was to begin. And certainly he must be remembering that 
wait, who is our God? We're His people. He brought us out of the nation of Egypt and rescued us by great plagues. And He brought us through the Red Sea and covered Pharaoh and his army with the sea and brought us out and we celebrated Passover and so on. He brought us over the Jordan River and into the land of promise and Jericho's walls fell down. Well, can God deliver us now? Of course He can. That's what Passover is all about. His hope is set on the Lord. And that's where you see that little phrase. Who knows? Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Sounds like he's quoting from, from, from Joel. Who knows whether God will be gracious to us and deliver us from this disaster. That's, that's what's going on here. Mordecai's rebuke is filled with warning, but also trust and hope. This is a changed man. Seems like the work of God in his heart is building momentum. God, through these bitter providences, has brought Mordecai to a place of repentance. He's not fearful anymore. And he's not silent. He's open. He's trusting. And he's bold. This morning, we see Esther's repentance. She responds well to Mordecai's rebuke. The question that Esther must immediately face then between her response initially of fear and Mordecai's response is she needs to face, who will I be? Who will I identify with? Remember in Esther, how many names do we know that she has in this book? Esther. What was that name? That was the Babylonian female god of love and war, right? So she could identify with that. Or what's her other name? Hadassah. There's her Jewish name. There's her identifying with the people of God and the promises of Yahweh and the power and the purposes of Yahweh in her life. So who's she going to be right now? Is she going to be Esther? Is she going to be Hadassah? That's the question. Will she be the, the Persian beauty queen or will she be the Jewish child of Yahweh? Who will she be? Will she be the hiding, pampered compromiser or will she be open and persecuted in her defense of God and His people? Will she trust her own compliant tactics or will she trust in Yahweh alone? Will she obey her wicked king husband or will she obey her righteous God? Will she continue in fear or sin or will she repent and trust and obey? Yahweh has providentially and mercifully, graciously brought her to a defining moment. She has to make a decision right here. Who will she identify? Who will she be? Who will she trust? God is so good at doing this with His children, isn't He? Bringing them right to a point of decision. They can't, they can't ignore the pressure anymore. Who will they be? Will they trust in Christ? Or will they continue to love the things of the world? And so she responds by God's grace with repentance. How do we know? She calls a fast. Verse 16, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast. And notice how she says it. Hold a fast on my behalf. Imagine that word going out into Susa. Esther's calling a fast for the Jewish people. Wow. She's identifying herself with God and His people. Again, a reference to Joel 2, 15 and 16 where 
God calls His people, blow the trumpet and declare a fast. Call everybody to participate in this. Sanctify the people for a fast. It's as if, in a sense, she is blowing the trumpet for the fast. She was willing now to identify with Yahweh and His people. She was willing to mourn and to seek deliverance on my behalf. And she says, and on my, and my, I and my young women will also fast. She was willing to identify with Yahweh and His people. And, it, and again, it very well could be that her heart had begun to turn to Yahweh not only out of desire to be delivered from the disaster, but also out of a desire to turn from her worldly compliance and compromise and sin. And then, that could be even indicated, or the fruit of that kind of repentance could be indicated by her resolve. Let her be. Her resolve. Verse 16, the second half. So then she says, after she declares the fast, she says, then I will go to the king. This is immediate 180 here. Right? She said just a little bit ago in fear, what did she say? I can't go. I haven't been called. I haven't been called for 30 days. Anybody who goes will be executed. Now what is she saying? I'll go to the king. Though it is against the law, she resolved to act in civil disobedience to the king in direct opposition to her fears. She resolved to obey who? God rather than men. She's identifying with God. She's identifying with His people. She is seeking to do what honors the Lord and preserve the life of His people. That's an immediate 180 here. So her fast, her resolve, and her selflessness is, is, is seen here as well. Though it is against the law, I will go to the king. And if I perish, I perish. Now, she was willing to give up her life in the pursuit of rescuing her people. And she certainly knew the possible cost of her actions. She resolved to selflessly place her life in the hands of Yahweh's providence. And she went ahead and resolved to go and talk with the king. Number 7, verse 17, Mordecai then did went away and did everything that Esther had ordered him. So they took that first step of faith and obedience to see what God would do in His mercy. This is indeed a changed man and a changed woman by the providence and grace of the Lord. This is when God began to make a great redemptive reversal in this story, not only in the hearts of His people, but then in the events of His people's lives. Here is where it all turns around. It's the bottom. Chapter 4 is the bottom. And now it begins to swing up. And God is at work in the lives of His people in such a kind and glorious way. Let's take some time as we move toward the end of this message to apply this to our lives. There's two points of application you have at the end of your notes there. The first one is recognize God's providential work. Dear ones, this book is about the glory of God and His providence at work in the lives of His people. Do you see it? Do you see the glory of God in all these things? 
there is a collision of lives and circumstances that have brought about the glorious events of this book. Think about it. Start at the top with Ahasuerus. Let's just review some of the things we've seen God providentially allow and weave together. There's a war on with Greece. He does a feast to gain loyalty. He's got a tremendous amount of wealth. This is one sensual king. He's a drunkard. He's got officials who manipulate him. He's angry. He's foolish. He becomes defeated in his war against Greece. He decides in his despair to gather a harem and get a new wife. And his desires for for Queen Esther are made known. And he's forgetful of Mordecai's act of loyalty. And he's apathetic about how Haman wants to treat the Jews. All of those things. Major events. Strands woven into God's providence. Everything working toward what? Mordecai and Esther's repentance. All of those were stepping stones to push them, push them, and bring them there. Haman, the Agagite, on the scene, descendant from Amalek. He gets a promotion. He's filled with pride. He's an angry man. He places this plan in place. The king gives him authority. He is absolutely perverse in all that he does. And out goes the decree that he started. But what is that about? That's about God providentially bringing Mordecai and Esther to repentance. Mordecai is a Benjaminite. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He's a descendant of Saul. Well, he's, his, 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 his denial of his own identity. He's seated at, as an official in the king's, in the king's court. He's an assimilator. He's compromised. He's, he sees this conspiracy happen. He tells about it. It's dealt with. He's slighted because, because he isn't rewarded immediately for his act of loyalty. He refuses to bow to Haman and he becomes one of the target Jews. All of that working toward the moment of his repentance. Vashti, she's the queen. She has a feast. She's beautiful. She refuses to come and parade her beauty. And she's removed. Again, part of working toward Mordecai and Esther's repentance. Esther takes her place. She's orphaned. She's adopted. She's beautiful. She's compliant. She's compromising. She's favored. She's loved. She's appointed. She's celebrated. And she eventually becomes targeted as well as being identified with the Jews. All of that at this point, first and foremost, working toward Mordecai and Esther's repentance, bringing them under great pressure until they have to identify with Yahweh, turn from their sin, and trust in Him. Can you see that? That's amazing how God would use all of this. Not, not sinfully. God isn't, God isn't making Ahasuerus sinful and sensual, but God is allowing it in order to bring about mourning and fasting and weeping and lamenting and prayer and public identification and trust and obedient action from His people to accomplish His will. But that's not all. What comes from this? Well, we'll see. But initially, Mordecai and Esther's repentance initiate something of the repentance in the Jews. That repentance then leads to what? Their rescue. 
God so kindly and graciously rescues them, just like Joel chapter 2 talks about. And ultimately, what does that yield? The coming of the Messiah. Because it is through the Jews that Christ came and was born to the world as our Savior. And so that He lived and died and rose again and is seated at the right hand of God today. And here's where we fit in. Post-cross, God is still providentially working in our lives today through all of the same kinds of events, though people in places with different names. And all of it is moving the people of God from testament to testament to a final fulfillment of all of God's redemptive plans in Christ for His glory forever. That's the big picture, isn't it? That's the big picture. So here's the question. How is God's providence at your, in your life at work today? What is He doing? Can you think of something? How has He worked providentially in your life in the past? Where is God putting pressure through divine providence on your life? Is He providentially leading you to repentance from something? That's what He was doing in the lives of Esther and Mordecai, wasn't He? Does He providentially orchestrate our circumstances to so press us that we're called to repentance from something? Of course we are. Difficult providence doesn't always mean that there is a sin in our lives that we're unwilling to repent of. Who comes to your mind in the Old Testament in that case? Job, right? He was greatly pressed. And yet, God exonerated him in a sense before his friends so that then he prayed for his friends in the end. They misjudged him. But difficult providence does mean that we should always examine our lives to see what God's providence is working to accomplish in us. We shouldn't turn an ignorant mind or a blind eye to God's providence. We should watch over it and pray, God, show me what are you doing in my life? What are you fashioning in my life? What do you have for me? Most of the time, we will find sin that He would desire us to repent of. I don't think I've ever had a trial in my life of great pressure from God's providence where there wasn't something that I needed to repent of. How about you? All the time, we will find areas of immaturity that He would desire to mature into the, us into the image of Christ. So how is God's providence working in your life? Maybe it's through a loss or an illness or relational difficulty, marriage, parenting, a church issue, some other relationship. Isn't it amazing how God works through all of our relationships like that? He is bringing us to repentance. You see, here's the issue. When we have a when we have a great situation of pressure from God's providence, our immediate response to it is often, well, what needs to happen for this to be fixed? That's not what God's after. He's after our repentance and our conformity to the image of Christ so that He can be glorified forever and we can delight in Him for all of eternity. That's what God's doing in His providence. He turns our hearts before He turns our circumstances. You see, this is what Esther is teaching us. 
could be a job stress, a financial strain, and on and on. God has many unique strands that His providence weaves into our lives in order to bring us to repentance and form Christ-likeness in us. So then the next question is, is how are you responding to the providence of God? And that's the next point you see in the application is respond rightly to God's providential work. And the first little point underneath that I'd, I'd like to mention is fear not. Fear not. Are you afraid of God's providential work in your life? Think about that question. What will God do to form me into Christ's likeness? Sometimes that thought brings us a sense of fear, doesn't it? What will it cost me? How painful will it be? How much pressure? What will I lose? Dear ones, as a child of God, all of God's providences come upon you in love. You know that? In love, in kindness, in mercy. Though He may take many things from you and Pain may come along with that. He wants to give you something far more precious. He wants to give you Himself, His likeness. Esther struggled with fear, didn't she? She struggled with fear in the face of God's providence. And the people in Joel. You notice, uh, turn back to Joel for a moment. Joel chapter 2. There's some verses in there. Remind the people of God not to fear. Verse 21, 22, fear not. Fear not, verse 22. It's easy to fear in this way. But this is when we must remember to place ourselves in the loving care of God. In our own minds, we are there. But we have to remember we're there. God always does what is good for His children. Are you afraid of confessing your sin and repenting under God's providence? Are you afraid of letting out a true confession of your sin? For fear that it will make you look different to the people around you or something? Or that it will bring more guilt in your heart? Or that God will somehow condemn you further? You know, confession is, is something that the child of God can do freely and openly because he knows that grace is surrounding him. That forgiveness is there with confession. That the righteousness of Christ is sufficient to cover any sin, no matter how deep or how great. Don't be afraid to be brought by God's providence to confession and repentance. It's a good thing. We confess our sin. He's faithful and righteous to forgive and to cleanse. That's what's on the other side of confession. Forgiveness. Cleansing. You don't believe God's Word on it? Look at the cross. That's what He did to promise you that forgiveness and cleansing would be resulting from confession. Are you afraid of the obedience that may come from repentance? Is it a cost? What things of the world will I have to let go of? What things of God will I need to embrace? Fear not, dear one. Fear not. How often in the Scriptures does God say that to His people? Fear not. I am with you. Be not afraid. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 
Fear not. Secondly, prayerfully seek to walk in repentance. <clears throat> Consider the marks of repentance there in Joel. You could work your way down from verses 12 all the way through to 27 and look at the, some of the marks. Let me just point them out to you. Jot some things down if you want to. Verse 12, even now declares the Lord, return to me. So we're called there to repent without delay. Right now, he says, turn to me. Not tomorrow. Turn from sin to the Lord now when you sense God's providence pressing you. But turn without delay. Turn with a willing heart. He says, turn to me with what? All your heart, verse 12. And fasting and weeping and mourning. It's not just going through external motions. Turn to me with your heart. Truly repent in the heart. You, you know, this is, this is the most important piece to truly repenting over sin. It's having a heart that's full of godly grief. Where does that come from? God Himself. So if you find your heart cold to true repentance, ask God to give you that willing heart. That is a prayer He would love to answer in your life. Turn with a willing heart. Three, turn with a broken heart. Verse 13, He says, Rend your hearts and not your garments. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Turn with a broken heart. You see, we, we're called to grieve over our sin. Like it says in James 4, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. You know, we modern day people, Christians, we, we like quick fixes, don't we? We like the drive through reconciliation option. Just get it done and get our relationships feeling good again. That's not how true repentance and change happens. It comes from taking the time to see our sin for what it is and to mourn over it. To see it from God's perspective. Number four, turn focused on God's character. Notice what he says there in verse 13. Return to the Lord your God for what? Because why? He's gracious and merciful and slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. That's why it's good to repent. Because when you turn to the Lord like that, that's how He'll respond to you. Draw near to God, and what? He will draw near to you. Repentance from sin is good. Turn focused on God's character. Number five, turn hoping in God's mercy. Verse 14, who knows whether He will not turn and relent. And leave a blessing behind Him. God is so kind and merciful. Hope in His mercy. Number six, turn together with others. Verse 15 and 16 there. Consecrate a congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children. Nursing infants. This is something that the people of God can even do together. To care for one another in that process of repentance. Turn as a priority. 16b, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. How many things in our busyness get in the way of true repentance? I don't have time to do that. My pace is too much. I, gotta, I can't slow down enough to grieve over my sin or deal with it the way I need to or, or, or get discipleship in this the way I should. What does he tell us here? You're getting married? Put a pause on your wedding and go repent and seek the Lord. Isn't that something? Wow. Let the bridegroom leave his room in the brighter chamber. Turn as a priority. Turn prayerfully with confession. Verse 17, between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord. 
Make not your heritage a reproach. Go to the Lord in prayer. He will abundantly pardon. He will cleanse and forgive. Nine, turn for God's glory. 17b, he said, for your, for your name. Let not your heritage be a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? See, why, why would we repent? Because when we repent, we become a people that honors the Lord with our lives. And that was the whole point of why God created a people like Israel, so that His name would be proclaimed as glorious in the world. It's ultimately not for us that we even repent. It's for the glory of God among us and in the world. And 10, turn expecting God to work mightily. That's 18-27. through 27. He lists the many things that He will do to bear fruit following repentance. Oh, prayerfully seek to repent. To walk in repentance. Prayerfully seek to trust the Lord. Proverbs 3, 5-12. through 12. Oh, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, know Him. Trust completely in the Lord. You know, there's so many things that we talk ourselves out of when making sin right or coming to the Lord in repentance because we're afraid. We're afraid of the cost. We're afraid of, of what we'll have to, to do with other people. We're afraid of, of what we may lose or what we may have to do. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Read Proverbs 3, 5-12 through 12 this week. There's a little bit of a homework assignment for you. I have notes there, but we're out of time. Trust in the Lord, even in the repentance, knowing that He providentially works to discipline us in love. I take that whole section together. Proverbs 3, 5 through 12. Walk through that carefully. And then, so in, in our proper response, it's fear not. Prayerfully seek to walk in repentance. Prayerfully seek to trust the Lord. In that repentance, He will forgive. He will provide all the grace that we need. And prayerfully then begin to take steps to obey God's Word. James 1, 22-25, But be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and he goes away and once again forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You see immediate steps, however small, to obey God's will from Esther and Mordecai following their repentance, don't you? Even small steps. Proclaim a fast. I'll go to the king. You tell everybody to get together and fast. Okay, okay. They do it. And watch God work. So God's calling us to that as well. You know, sometimes, and we've, we've talked about this before, but let me remind you of it. We'll, we'll gather here as God's people and we'll open God's Word and He'll give us understanding and we'll sing about it and we'll be moved in our affections. But then we leave in what? Do nothing. And we forget. That's not obedience, is it? That's not real repentance. Never forget that saying yes to truth and feeling emotional about it even in the moment of teaching or singing isn't obedience. That's just the beginning. 
And we might think that that's all the change required. That's what it means to be a deceived hearer of the Word only. To say, I agree with that. I understand that. I feel that. But then to leave and forget and do nothing. God is calling us to evaluate. What is His providence doing in my life? And am I responding to it in repentance? Let's seek to be obedient to the Lord this week, even in that way. And then prayerfully watch what God will do in and through your life. His providence reaches way before you and way far after you as well. And you're a piece of the, of the, of the means that He is bringing about His, His great eternal plans and promises. He's moving everything toward that eternal great joy of being in Christ. Well, as we come to prayer, let me ask you, dear friend, are you in Christ this morning? Are you in Christ? Do you know your sins are forgiven? Do you know you're a child of God? Are you certain of that? Do you see the holiness of God as our Creator King who made all things for us to enjoy but made us to live under His reign? Do you see your own sinfulness to turn against that King and to use His creation for your own pleasure and sin against His will? Have you, have you reckoned with your own sin? Do you see the righteousness of God and His wrath against you as a sinner? We all deserve that wrath, don't we? If we're honest, we know how greatly we have sinned against the Lord and He is right to judge us. And do you see your need for salvation? That's the whole point of the Gospel. To rescue you and me from the wrath of God against our sin. And to then grow us away from sinning. So that we can grow to become more like Jesus. You can't save yourself. Have you realized that? Every effort that you make to try to be better, to try harder, in order to press God and cleanse your conscience, doesn't work. If you wanted to try to be good enough to impress God, you'd have to keep His entire law all the time in your heart and not just with your hands. That's impossible for us. There's only one who ever did that. Who is that? Jesus Christ. He earned eternal life by His obedience to God's law, and He wants to give righteousness, His righteousness, freely to those who will receive it and trust in Him by faith. That's the only way we can, be, we can be saved, is by faith. Do you see then the glory of Christ as Savior and King? Do you see Him as the one who, as God eternally became man, to live a perfect life under the law of God humbly, and went to the cross willingly to receive your guilt upon Himself? And be punished out of the wrath of God in your place? What can the cross do for you 2,000 years after it's happened? It's the taking of your sin and my sin and placing it on the Son so that He bears in His body the punishment that we deserve. And God has done that for everyone who will believe in Him. It's settled. There's atonement that's been made. It's real. It's actual. So will you come to Him like a child? Will you come to Christ and say, that's what I need. I need you. He that has the Son has what? Life. You have the Son. You have everything you need. 
to be right with God. His righteousness is yours. His atonement is for you. Will you come to Christ and receive Him? If you will, He will receive you. Will you trust in what He has done for you? And that alone to be made right with God. All who come to Him longing for His salvation and His rule in their lives will be received. You will not be turned away. Ruth or Esther was concerned that she'd be turned away in coming to Queen, King Ahasuerus, right? For fear of his wrath. But if you come to Christ, longing for his salvation, the scepter will already be raised. You may come if you so want to. You're invited already. John 6.37 All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. There's Jesus' promise. Will you respond to those today? Let's stand together. Let's pray together before we sing again. Our Father in Heaven, we have looked at this text and and we do begin to make the connections between Your providence in Esther and Your providence in our lives. Open our eyes, Father, to show us where we need to turn from sin from our worldliness, from our slowness to obey You, for our fear, from our fear to identify with You as being in Christ, Your child. Father, show us. Use. Use whatever means in our lives You choose by Your providence to bring about true repentance and Christ-likeness in our lives. And, and if so needed, bring us to salvation. And we see Christ as our Savior King and come to Him. Thank You that You receive all who come in faith. We're grateful for Your promises. Teach us now by Your Spirit to act in obedience upon the things that we've heard. For Your glory we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.